Hey guys, welcome to Legendary Tales. This is one of your hosts, Isadora Martin Dye, and I'm your other host, Adam Bloor. And Adam Bloor, and I sound like I'm really far away. <laughs> <laughs> so Adam, as you guys who listen in on us regularly, has uh, decided to decamp to France while yeah. the house that he's staying in is destroyed. Um, and rebuilt. Absconded to yep. France. So he's now on week four of sunning himself in the med, and he's bored out uh, of his mind. Yeah, because I, I, I was when you when you uh, messaged me on Facebook, I was convinced that we had planned for four weeks, not realizing that we were actually a week behind in our recording. Yeah, and that, that the fourth episode actually just caught us up. But this should be uh, this should be good. I'm pretty stoked to hear what you have to talk about. Cool. Well, so we did decide that this time we're going to do a legendary crime. Yeah, it's going to be really embarrassing because we haven't discussed with each other what the other is talking about. So it's going to be really funny if we've picked the same thing. Well, we haven't because my mom told me earlier that she had been listening to you do your research and that it was really, really interesting. Oh, so it's yours not really interesting. Mine's a little bit different, actually. I found two interesting things. Okay. Cool. Yes, I did actually two different things, but I believe you are first up today. I am. I am first up, and I'm going to be talking about Ronnie Biggs and the Great Train Robbery of 1963. Woohoo! You know what I and think is really cool is neither of us went with like serial killer murderers type thing. No. So I um I wanted to do a French thing originally, okay. and so like I Google searched like famous French crimes, and mm-hmm. you just kept getting. Um, results for the man in the iron mask and i'm not like i'm not ready to do that sort of literary analysis on which, our podcast which is really funny because one of my two criminals is actually french and both of the uh, yeah. crimes that i'm talking about today <laughs> occurred in france okay cool and then the other one that i was considering doing was one of i didn't realize this but one of the women in the manson family one of like manson's girls uh-huh. was was born in paris oh that's cool um but I also was not prepared to do, like, Manson in an episode. No, I think like, maybe just, we'll do, like, a Legendary Cults one, maybe? Yeah, I think that would be I think that would be good. So or Legendary I, I, I Serial said, Killers, but I feel like we both, for crimes, we went with something a bit more, like, honestly, mine is art theft, so it's, like, okay. a lot more Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, so this is a bit, this is a bit Ocean's Eleven, too. Um, I mean, the, the caper itself is a bit <laughs> sort of jury-rigged, but we'll... we'll We'll get into all that. It's it's quite good. Um, Tell me about it. Do it. I will say before I start, I'd like to thank my sources. Um, <laughs> I use Britannica.co.uk. The British Transportation Police website provided quite a bit of information. That's kind of cool about this. And then I've also I have an article from the Guardian's archives, so I'll be reading a bit of that once I get to that part of the story. We do, considering we haven't like colluded at all in what we're doing this week. One of my major sources is also the Guardian. Okay, just I think it just tells a bit about us, doesn't it? I I guess so. Did you watch the movie? Because isn't there a Great Train Robbery movie? The movie came out in like 1903, and the crime happened in 1963, so they're unrelated. Oh well, there we go. First thing I've learned yeah. for the day. So I'm I start I'm going to start with Ronnie Biggs, and he's one of the the members one of the actors in this great train robbery. He was born on August 8th, 1929 in London, and there's not much really to say about him until he turns 18 when he enlists in the Royal Air Force in 1947, um, and he is dishonorably discharged two years later for desertion. And the reason he's not at his post is because he's knocking over a local chemist. Good guy. 
So he starts very early on with his life of crime. And this sort of continues. He's convicted of a couple other petty crimes, convicted of stealing a car, and he's also convicted of a failed robbery of a bookkeeper. And this failed robbery lands him in HMP Wandsworth, which is a prison, I believe, in London. Okay. And during his incarceration, he meets a man named Bruce Reynolds, who's another sort of petty crook. At the time, he, Bruce was in prison for the assault and robbery of a bookie. And Bruce is the man who is sort of, he's lauded as the mastermind of the great train robbery. And uh, this is... I always of, thought it was the only one I've heard of is Bragg. Oh, so. yeah. So, so Ronnie Biggs sort of became a folk hero. And yeah. I'll get into that a, a little bit later. But he is like one of the most famous people related to the robbery. Okay. Bruce Bruce Reynolds and a man named uh, Gordon Goody are sort of they they were like the men in prison who planned this this heist. Reynolds, uh, after he left Wandsworth, successfully heisted sixty two thousand pounds uh, from a security van outside of Heathrow, and he held up another train previous to the the one in sixty three, but that only netted seven hundred pounds. But at this point, he sort of had a taste for the large amount of money that this sort of heisting can bring. Um, and like the 700 three, pounds? Well, no, the 62,000 pounds oh, okay. that he got from the security <laughs> van. No, it, it's, so he has a very successful heist outside of the airport, and then he takes a train, makes no money, and then decides to rob a train again, which is sort of like maybe you should have just robbed the, the airport security van. Or else he didn't like failure, so he wanted to wipe that record <laughs> clean. That could be. So he sets up a gang of 15 men, members of, of the gang that he was a part of, and then including Ronnie Biggs. Um, and this sort of, this leads to the great train robbery. So at three o'clock in the morning on August 8th, 1963, a traveling post office tram traveling from Glasgow to Houston with a high value package carriage in tow um, is stopped. It stopped at Sears Crossing. The conductor, Jack Mills, looks out and he sees a red signal, stops the train, and the co-conductor just tries to call ahead to the next station to see what's going on. Uh, and when he goes to make the call, he realizes the line side phone is disconnected, and he is attacked from behind and then thrown from the, from the train. Okay. Mills, the conductor himself, is knocked unconscious, and while he's unconscious, the gang of men disconnects the engine and the first two cars from the rest of the train. The reason they do this is because the first two trains contain registered mail. So basically the post office sorts registered mail on one of these cars, mm -hmm. and a lot of that is cash. It's just cash that comes through the mail. Oh, okay. And, and normally that, that train would carry around 300,000 pounds, yeah. but there was a bank holiday in Scotland that weekend. So there was about 2.3 million pounds on the train that day. Just which, in, like, in like people putting in mail? Yeah. It was basically just cash. Wow. Okay. Um, and I'm assuming it, had, it was going to banks, probably moving in between banks and stuff. But it, from what I could tell, it, it was probably a combination of, like, bank notes passing and personal letters, I, I think. Because your dad a, throws, like, cash in an envelope for you on every <laughs> holiday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's American money, so it's not really worth anything over here. Yeah, I know. But it's also, like, how many of those envelopes would have to uh, be oh sent God. to equal... So many personal letters. <laughs> two point something million dollars. Pounds. Which... Yeah, so it was 2.3 million pounds, which in today's money is around 30 million. Jesus. So it was like a huge, like, a huge pot. Now, was that today's money pre-COVID or post-COVID? Because I think money Ooh, might be that, worth a little less now. That's a good question. Um, I think it was pre-COVID, because I think this was 2019 money. Okay. 
So they disconnect the front two trains, but they can't move the money off of the train because the point where they disconnected them, the banks are released. So the plan is to move it to another crossing, the Bredego Bridge. Okay. Unfortunately, the surrogate train driver who had spent months going to local train yards under the pretense that he was interested in how locomotives worked Mm -hmm. was completely unprepared for moving a big diesel engine. Okay. So they they had to wake the conductor back up. And this is sort of the first hitch in their plan. So they move, they have Mills, the conductor, move the train to Bredego, and the 15 gang members sort of, like, push the postal workers to the back. Um, and from what I'd read, the, the back 10 cars of the train had no idea what was going on. Oh, okay. Like the, the engine, the three, the two carrier carriages disconnected, moved on, and no one in the back knew what was happening. Were there passengers on the train, too? Uh, no, it was m- mostly employees of the post office. Okay. In order to move the money, they re- relocate the the train to Bredego Bridge, and it's like a human conveyor belt. They move 120 sacks containing 2.5 tons of of like banknotes. Are these are they just are these like bags of money in cash, or are these like envelopes yeah. with cash they're in them? Ba- they're they're like bags of cash. Wow. And at some point, one of the the gang members tells the post office worker to wait 30 minutes before calling the police. Okay. So what that that leads to, the police being able to immediately narrow down their, their like, search radius. Okay. Because they they assumed that in half an hour, the gang would have been able to get to their hideout Mm -hmm. before the police showed up. Oh, okay. So that's, like, the second... That's the second hitch. Pretty and what, good thinking on the police, though, I guess. Yeah, and, and so the news of this sort of travels very quickly. And there's a, there happens to be a farmhouse, coincidentally, 30 minutes from the bridge where they unloaded the money in Oakley, Buckinghamshire, the Leather Slade Farm. And it's been rented out, and the neighbors are now very suspicious of the increased activity at the farm. Through the uh, combined efforts of the Flying Squad of Scotland, Scotland Yard, the Buckinghamshire Police, and the British Transport Police, they 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 crack down on the farm and the gang. Like they they try to flee, and the police are like, "All right, like we know that anyone who was on this farm is who we're looking for." And it's not hard to track these criminals down because they didn't leave a clean uh, crime scene. Oh, okay. They left, finger, they left fingerprints all over the train. They left fingerprints all over the the farmhouse where they were staying. And so it just becomes like this. It's just a matter of time. And okay. in the end, in the end, they round up, I think, 12 of the 15 uh, gang members. And they're sentenced to a total of 307 years between the 12 of them. Wow. Ronnie Biggs himself is, is sentenced to 30 years in prison. What I thought was interesting about this is I was talking to Steve. Yeah, about that's my... This. The semi stepfather. Yeah, and he remembers when this happened. When this happened. That's because he's. And old. he said, he said it was unusual to even get thirty years for murder in the UK at that time. So the fact that they were, sort of like it, it was almost like they were sending a a message about this sort of like. Yeah. Active, but essentially, essentially nobody just, was hurt, right? No. So well, they did when they knocked out the the conductor. He did suffer some brain trauma and he never recovered from it oh okay all right okay but 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 like in and that's awful and but in terms of violent crime they didn't use any firearms Mm -hmm. they only physically harmed one person Mm -hmm. 
the robbery really only would have hurt the banks, I think, from what I could yeah. From what I could suss out, they, they, they kind of became folk heroes. Yeah, because it's, it's kind of interesting that this is such a legendary crime, because it really is. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize how, how well known these these criminals were until I started to, to dig into it. Okay, but had um, you heard of this tale before you started digging into it? No. Okay. Nope. Because in England, the yeah, Great Train Robbery is like a big crime yeah it's, like, it's like a robin hood yeah. type deal almost it's like it's like that legendary yeah. um which so it was really cool to dig into it and sort of explore the people involved and i mean i i have this written as a note but basically none of the criminals who were involved lived comfortably after this obviously okay um they spent all of the money that they they stole on their legal fees <laughs> or in the in the case of ronnie biggs on his uh subsequent fleeing of the uk so i mean it, it was just it was it was such a bombastic sort of over the top robbery and then it just nothing came of it really total, total cluster f oh for sure like besides the amount of time people spent in prison afterward like nothing happened <laughs> which basically. is weird that it's so legendary then <laughs> oh yeah for sure um but i think that has to do with ronnie biggs who's okay. one of the characters and I'm now going to go back to him. Cool. So in 2019 money, um, he would have gone away with $3.1 million. That would have been his like share of the, of the pot. Um, when he was captured, he was sentenced to 30 years again at Wandsworth prison. And he served 15 months before he escaped. He escaped scaling an exterior wall and entering the top of the furniture van through a hole in the roof. And it, it was described by the guardian as being as full of, panache and flamboyance as the the robbery of the train was so the person with the laundry truck or whatever that he jumped into was an accomplice i assume yeah um i i unrelated to the um train robbery unrelated to the robbery yes um but someone who i think maybe they i couldn't find if they had this planned in the eventuality they got captured or if it was just someone who he had contact with on the outside. So I'm going to read a bit of this article. Um, the headline is, Second Train Robber Escapes from Prison. And this was written by Tony Wait, Garrity. he was the second one to escape? Yeah, I don't know who escaped first. Okay. Um, but he escaped with three other people from the prison. The three people that he, the three men that he escaped with weren't related to the robbery. They were just some of his bros, I guess. Cool. So I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from this. Okay. The 30-year prison sentence, which Ronald Arthur Biggs, one of the great train robbers, began 15 months ago, was abruptly placed in suspense yesterday afternoon when he was allowed out to exercise in the yard of Wandsworth Prison, London. With three other prisoners, he disappeared over the 20-foot-high wall while his guards, obstructed by men still on exercise, watched helplessly. Like the train robbery itself, this operation was characterized by panache and flamboyance, if it was planned by the same brains that coaxed, coaxed two million pounds from the Royal Mail train, and more recently, another of the robbers from Winsor Green Prison, Birmingham, there was a ruthless innovation on this occasion, the introduction of firearms. At a minute or so after 3 p.m., a bright scarlet furniture van trundled off a side road passing the prison and passed the notice that says, Private Road, speed limit, five miles per hour. To the left of the road is the prison wall. To the right, the prefabricated bungalows, occupied by prison officers and their wives, and, in a cutting line behind these, a busy railway line. 
So far as could be established last night, no one saw anything that happened. In the exercise yard at 3.05, a startled officer, one of four on duty there, saw a man's head and a stocking mask appear over the top of the wall. Among those on exercise under his care were 14 men on the quote-unquote escape list, a home office statement about the affair said. The officer in charge immediately rang the alarm bell, and at the same time, the man who appeared on the wall shouted and threw over the wall a rope ladder and tubular steel ladder. Four prisoners immediately made for the ladder and climbed to the top. The prison officers in the yard tried to stop the men as they were going over the ladder, but the prison officers were stopped by some of the remaining prisoners. Other prison officers arrived, and the men were taken back to their cells. That's okay. the end of that. Basically, at this point, they got to three getaway cars, and they just buggered off. Nice. And um, British. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Biggs escapes the prison, and he contacts his wife and says, hey, meet me in Paris with, the, with, with our kids. Does he have the money? Yes, he has. I don't know where or how it got anywhere, he, but, he, but he is still in possession of the $3.1 Because I kind of assumed that if they'd found them at the farmhouse that quickly, none of them had a chance to get away with any of the loot. So some of it was buried, but like that was sort of, that was something I didn't actually come across. But it is weird to think because he does end up spending quite a bit of money, so he has to have at least some of it. Okay. Um, he tells his wife and children... He tells his wife to bring his child and meet them in Paris, yep. where he undergoes plastic surgery. And then from Paris, he and his family go to Melbourne. This is in 1967, and he had spent all but 7,000 pounds of his 176,000 pound cut. Okay. Um, mostly on plastic surgery and on the cost of subtly moving his family from Paris to Australia. Okay. He tried to work several sort of straight jobs. He worked as a uh, he did some construction work for a local TV station, but at some point a journalist for Reuters gets the uh, gets the scoop. They find out where he is, and the police are on his way on the way to Australia to to detain him. So he leaves his wife and children and flies to Brazil. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, no extradition. Um, no, yep, exactly. So while he's in Brazil, he has a child. Um, That's very impressive of him. Yeah, this subsequently leads to a divorce with his current wife, as you would expect. Yes. But this does mean that he can't be extradited because his girlfriend at the time was pregnant, um, and Brazil will not allow parents of Brazilian citizens to be extradited under any circumstances. Oh, really? I thought it was just like, A, I thought it was just like a general thing. Brazil didn't extradite. No, this specifically said that because she was pregnant and going to have his child, he couldn't be extradited back to the UK. Well, there's a motivation to get knocked up. Yeah. Or to yeah. knock someone else up. Yeah. Uh, while he was in Brazil, Brazil, he had a he was largely unable to work um, because he was a known criminal. Even though he couldn't be extradited, people knew who he was yeah. and wouldn't hire him. He was also under a strict curfew, uh, so he sort of had to tell the story of of his robbery in order to support his child and girlfriend. Oh, uh, so okay. They'd like host barbecues. And he would sort of charge people to listen to his story. That's kind of amazing. He sort of, yeah, he sort of makes his way um, profiting off of his notoriety. He recorded some vocals for the soundtrack of The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which is, a, I think, a documentary about the Sex Pistols. Okay. And he made some money doing that, just recording some vocals for a documentary about the sex pistols. So that's why he's strange. so kind of well yeah, known. Yeah, why he 
he's sort of well known and and, and loved by yeah. by like the the, the public. Uh, in 1981, while he's living in Brazil, he is kidnapped by British ex-soldiers who are going to take him back to the UK for some award or not award for a reward um, <laughs> that they're not that they're not sure that they're going to get anyway. But the ship breaks down off the coast of Barbados, and they are rescued by the Barbados Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. And again, like Brazil, Barbados has no extradition treaty with the UK. Does so it not? I Biggs, would have thought it did. Nope. So at the time, they didn't. So Biggs just flew back to Brazil. Oh. <laughs> he, he, he was there with his captors, and yeah. he just went back. He just went back to Brazil with with like no skin off of his hide. This man has managed to escape like police, the, the grasp of the police, basically by a sheer amount of luck. It seems like. And nothing sticks. Exactly. And that kidnapping, actually, a movie was was written about it that he co-wrote. It's called The Prisoner of Rio, and it came out in 1988. Um, so, him. again, he's, he's sort of using his notoriety, again, to, to support mm-hmm. his family. In 1997, Brazil ratified their extradition treaty with the UK, and Big said that he would no longer oppose extradition. But Brazil denied the extradition request, which would have allowed him to live in the country for the rest of his life. I'm not sure if the if the UK government would have been putting in the request. Yeah. But if they were, the Brazilian government was basically just doing him a huge favor. That's so weird. They were like, no, you like, we're not going to send you back to spend the rest of your life in prison. Okay. At this point, at this point, he's eluded capture for like 30 years. Yeah. He ends up being a fugitive of the law for 35 years before he eventually ends up back in the UK. Okay, so um, what... Re- okay, uh, you know, I have a vague recollection of him coming back. Yeah, so his return to England is predicated by a fa- a failing health. He's in his late 70s. He's suffering several strokes. And allegedly, he comes back to the UK because of the superior healthcare system. Yeah, probably um, better than Brazil. Yes, I would say so. Um, but he's quoted as saying he wanted to walk into his local as an Englishman and buy a pint of bitter. Um, well, you've been there. You know how that feels. The most English thing that anyone has ever said. Um, um, when did he come back then? So he came back in 2001 at this point. So before he comes back, he's, he's like 28 years left to serve of his sentence. Okay. Because they've given him, they, they said, you serve the 15 months, you can have that. But as soon as you land on English soil, we're going to detain you and and uh, put you in prison. And he's like, I'm old. I need some help with my health. Like, I can't live in Brazil anymore. So the, the son actually paid for a, a private jet to fly him back. The son newspaper. Yeah, the son newspaper. Okay. And then paid his son Michael, his Brazilian son, I believe, uh-huh. 20,000 pounds for an exclusive story. An exclusive interview with with Biggs, which I didn't go to the the effort okay. of of looking up. Um, I'm assuming it just covers all of this stuff. Yeah. So he he lands, I think, in 2001, and it is immediately detained and sent to prison. Okay. Yeah, um, I do remember this because I was 16 yeah. then, and I remember Mom and I talking about it. Okay. So he spends the next eight years in prison. Okay. Um, sort of his health is failing. He's having strokes. He. Yeah. Uh, he at one point contracts SARS and throughout all of this, he's applying for uh, release on compassionate grounds mm-hmm. because of his failing health. But 
the government's like, no, we can't let you just like you haven't actually repented for anything. Like you have to spend your time in prison. Nothing you have is going to kill you. Is basically what they're saying. Yeah. And at this point, the the son of the conductor of the yeah. of the train is still alive, and he's super pissed that Biggs has been able to elude capture for thirty years. Okay, well, he's, yeah, okay. he's he's I mean, reasonably, he's quoted as saying, "Like, I have no, Oops. I have no compassion for these men. Like, they should just rot in prison." Which yeah. I mean, understandable. Yeah, because um, although he's a folk hero, it doesn't stop him being a criminal. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in January of 2009, a stroke left him unable to speak or walk, and the government said that he would be released in August and would be allowed to die a free man. Okay. He ended up leaving prison July 30th of 2009. He was released two days before his 80th birthday on grounds of compassion. Funnily enough, as soon as he left prison, his health started to recover. Interesting, that. And he, he lived a free man for four years um, and died at the Carlton Court Care Home in London on December 18th, 2013, at the ripe old age of 84. What about his family that he left in Australia? Did they get involved when he? Or is there just, um, like, nothing more I from think they, I think they sort, of, they sort of cut him out. There is a movie about her that came out. I don't have the title for that on hand, but she, she sort of became as you do when you're in the periphery of a person's life like that, you sort of become a character of fiction yourself. Yeah. So there's a, there's a movie you can find that focuses on his actions and the impact that they left on her life and the children that he would leave with her in Australia. Mm. They had three children together before he fled to Brazil. Yeah. His, his oldest, his eldest son with her ended up dying in a car accident, which is awful, but that's, that's, basically as far as I got with her life after he left. Yeah. He was awarded in 2010. I think the Cray Twins is a very recognizable name in the UK. It is, although They're I know cr- nothing about them. Just a criminal, so, cr- London criminal. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I, I obviously didn't dig into them yeah. for this episode, but one of their associates hosted an, a, an award ceremony for him, for Ronnie Biggs. And in 2010, he was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award for his services to crime, where he was awarded with gold-plated knuckle dusters that were engraved with his name. And they had this, like, big gala dinner where, like, 500 hardened criminals came together. That's and awesome. And applauded this, applauded this man who, whose whole life was dedicated to advancing advances in, in the life of crime. Which I think is hilarious. That is awful, but and funny and, and awesome. The the Ministry of Justice at the uh, or a Ministry of Justice at the time was quoted. This is just rubbing our noses in it. He was said to be seriously ill when released. Now he's off to gala dinners with his pals, and it is it's just it's just a funny. It it, it sort of exemplifies his legacy to do with the the robbery because he everyone knew he was in brazil every single police force knew he was there and they just couldn't touch him yeah and then he came and served eight years in prison i mean he was in his late 70s so that probably felt like an eternity but he came and served eight years was released on compassion for ill health and then was fine for another four years before he finally passed yeah although having sars kind of sucks yeah that would not be great no, that wouldn't be great. And the strokes don't sound super stellar either, but... And it doesn't sound like he was living in the life of luxury. In no, he was he was living in near, like, I would say probably abject poverty. Um, but 
you know, he, he lived a free man for, for 35 years outside of the control of the English government after having committed what is seen as largely one of the most idealized. I wonder if he I, went back and asked him whether he'd say he'd do it again or would he just serve out? He was, what, sentenced to 30 years, which is kind of 20 30 years. 20 years of good behavior. Yeah. Like, he'd have been done and out 20 years later and been able to yeah. actually, you know. Yeah, it was interesting as well. I was talking to, to Steve about this again because obviously some of the the, the the men did serve their sentences. Yeah. And one of them was a florist in Waterloo Station. Oh, okay. I think Steve may have seen him a couple of times. Well, it makes sense. Steve would have commuted through Waterloo all the time. Yep. And um, he ended up, someone ended up filming a movie about him, and he sadly ended up taking his life 10 years after the movie was released. Not sure if it was related to the resurgence of his uh, name in the yeah. news after the after the movie came out, or if, if it was something unrelated. But those, they didn't, none of them really did well after the after the robbery occurred well yeah it's kind of depressing yeah and that crime doesn't pay kids well my my stories may have a different message oh oh no (laughs) oh no (laughs) actually they don't really well they're not as much of a bummer (laughs) yeah all right okay so i am going to talk to you about two separate art thieves um, right. And the reason I'm going to talk to you about two separate art thieves, which is, by the way, I think the first time we've ever done this in a thing where we've tried to do, we've always done one story, but is because both of them have written their own book. So mm. if the stories I tell you are interesting to you, don't hear them from me. Go <laughs> hear them from them because no, they're going to do it listen, so much better than I am. Listen to the whole podcast first and then go buy the books. Yeah. No, it, I... And honestly, that was what it brought down to. There is a phenomenal article. So I'm going to give you my sources and kind of just give you some of the, like, there's there's a lot of kind of semi... Okay, both of these people are still alive. Mm -hmm. So one was born in 1971, and one was born quite a lot earlier than that, but is still alive. He's quite old now. He was born in 1943. And they have both written books, and they've both got tons of newspaper articles about them. But the two or three that I've used the most, there is an amazing article from a, a magazine called Epic Magazine, and it's mm-hmm. written by Joshua Davis and David Wallum, and they write this, it's a six years old, this article, and they write this kind of Disney version of The Gentleman Thief, who okay. is Vincenzo Pippino, and it actually gets optioned, and it's got optioned into a movie, although I don't know that that's going anywhere. But, and then... There's a couple of Italian and French language newspapers that I also used when they translated. I will say that, therefore, some of my quotes aren't exactly verbatim because if I went with the translation of how Google translated them, it would make no sense. So (laughs) my other sources are The Guardian and Wikipedia. And mainly Wikipedia because it has the English, it cites the people that I've talked about and the sources, but it's already translated them into English for me. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to start yep. with our our youngest of the two, who is Stefan Rettweiser, who is a Frenchman, born in October of 1971. And the reason I've chosen him to talk about is because I... The, what got me started on this was I wanted to do, like, literally a heist. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted to do like a full on glamorous like heist. Italian and, job sort yeah, of deal. Exactly. And it led me to an article called Who is Stealing the Paintings? Which I think is a translation. <laughs> and I can really you tell me. <laughs> but it was a kind of a psychological breakdown of the different types of people that steal paintings. Because oh, okay. it's not art being something that is subjective to everyone. It isn't necessary that people are stealing the most expensive thing. Okay. Because it's Oh, do people steal what they like? Because people steal, steal what they like. And that oh, is that's what so weird. So that was our first guy we're gonna talk about is someone neither of these people are really stealing for profit. So okay. that's kind cool. of why I think they're pretty cool. Although Although in that case, they're stealing from, like, failing artists. No, not <laughs> really. Only... <laughs> not okay. really. So, uh, Stefan Rietweiser has stolen at least 239 artworks from 172 museums between oh 1995 God. and 2001. That's in six years. On average, okay, that's one theft every 15 days. Okay, cool, cool. Okay. I'm on board. So, he grew up in an environment... His father was a collector of antiques, and he grew up with this kind of love of old things. His father left him and his mother and left him kind of impoverished, and his dad took all his antique weaponry and stuff with him when he left. And Mm -hmm. Stefan basically said from that day onwards, he decided he wanted his own collection. His great uncle was a famous painter, and they... It was really kind of, he just got brought up in a life of art. Of appreciation. Yes. And, but he himself and his family were quite poor. He worked as a waiter and various other different bits and pieces around. His first real theft came in 1995. And that is when they consider his kind of crime spree began. He was Mm. in Switzerland with his girlfriend, who is called Kleiner Klaus. Mm. and Catherine kind of Klaus. It's beautiful. When he fell in love with a painting and he said he was fascinated by her beauty, but the qualities of the woman in the, not just the beauty, but the qualities of the woman in the portrait and by her eyes, I thought it was an imitation of Rembrandt. And he just kind of basically fell in love with this girl in this picture. So he asked his girlfriend to keep watch and he worked the nails out of the frame and put the painting under his jacket and walked out. Okay. And that is legitimately how he stole almost everything he got. Dang. It was, I mean, I was looking for like heisting here. That's nerves of steel. But this was not heisting. This was like walk in, take it. This is, this is mine now. Take it, leave. The fact of the matter is he wasn't after a payday. So right. he wasn't, he was visiting small museums and collections where they didn't mm. have the same kind of money. Not the same um, kind of security, I'm assuming. Yeah, to secure it. If you, yeah, because I, I know like in some, most modern museums, if you like walk up and if you touch the Mona Lisa, someone's going to cut your hand off. Okay, so actually what started me down this whole thing was the theft of the Mona Lisa. I almost did that as well, because I saw it on the, on the I, like, I Google searched list of famous crimes, and I was like, someone stole the Mona Lisa? But actually it's happened. not that interesting. Mm. Or not that, not that... I couldn't find no, a whole enough. enough. Yeah, I couldn't find enough information to fill an episode. Mm. Um, other than they thought that Pablo Picasso may have stolen it at one point. Yeah. And it turns out it was someone who had stolen it with the idea of returning it to the homeland, where he thought it. I guess Italy had gifted it. Uh, I guess 
it had been gifted to France, but he thought it had been okay. stolen by France, so he was going to take it back to Italy. Gotcha. That's not super interesting. No. It was that was really the extent of it. We maybe will do it. Maybe I'll touch on like famous actual paintings at some point, but mm, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so although he amassed such a large collection of art, he never attempted to sell any of it. He just wanted to sit around and think about how he was the wealthiest man in Europe with the best art collection. Mm. It was all kept in his mother's house, in, which is in Mulhouse, France, and his room was kept in semi-darkness so that the sunlight wouldn't fade the paintings. He got them reframed by a local framer, but he, the local framer didn't recognize them, mainly because he wasn't stealing like super expensive, famous paintings. Yeah. And apparently his mother also didn't realize the works were stolen and thought he'd legitimately bought them at auction. Mm-hmm. When in court, he said, his selection, my selection criteria was a magnificent blue sky and wonderful people. He said he didn't just go to museums to steal, but concluded if there was an opportunity, he would just take it. Whether it was a Bruegel or a painting by an unknown artist, whether it was worth a thousand euros or millions, it was the beauty of the work that interested me. So he really just walked through museums, fell in love with stuff, and just took them off the just wall. Just took the paintings. That's insane. The most valuable work of art he stole was Sybil, Princess of Cleves, by Lucas Crunch the Elder, from a castle in Baden-Baden in 1995. It was being sold by Sotheby's auction, and he literally mm-hmm. just cut it from the frame at the auction and walked out with it. And it was estimated to be between five and six million pounds. So he was first caught in 1997 when he was in Switzerland and he had been allowed to see a painting with special permission from the owner. It was in a private gallery. Mm. So he just took it. And it doesn't seem like the smartest theft because if you've been given special permission to see it and you just take it, it doesn't give them... Yeah, no, not many suspects on that list. No, so, but as it was his, yeah. He wasn't known as an art thief until 97, or did people know that, like, no, he was the one stealing, okay. None at all. In fact, okay, so when he was found to have stolen this thing, it was his first offense on Swiss soil. So he was only given an eight-month suspended sentence, banned from entering Switzerland. He didn't even serve time in jail. Wow. And... uh, took up his mother's maiden name and actually did continue going to Switzerland because I guess that's where he worked. His proper arrest happened in November 2001 where he was caught after stealing a bugle dating from 1584, one of only three like it in the world with an estimated value of £45,000 from the Richard Wagner Museum in Lucerne, Switzerland. Wow. So he took this. Okay, again, we're not talking criminal mastermind. The fact that he managed to he took this bugle, a security guard spotted him, so he came, but I guess he must not have realized, because two days later he came back to the museum to have a wander around. Okay, so what happened was, is a journalist, Eric Eisner, was walking his dog on the museum grounds when he noticed a man who seemed out of place, because he was wearing an overcoat, which I guess it must have been warm, although it was November in Switzerland, so I don't really know how wearing an overcoat was. Yeah, especially if you're outside. Yeah. Um, anyway, he went to alert the guard because he'd heard of the theft, but it, and it happened to be the same guard who had seen Bretterweiser do the theft. Oh, this is bad luck. And he alerted the authorities who arrested him, and 
Apparently, the Lucerne police awarded Eisner's dog a lifetime supply of food in appreciation for helping spot him. Okay. I, like, the dog? <laughs> so he spent two years in Switzerland before being extradited to France. Mm-hmm. However, it took 19 days for them to acquire an international search warrant. Uh, just bear that in mind as we keep going. Okay. Okay. So, mm-hmm. once he got arrested, Clean, clean Clouse, his girlfriend who was usually his accomplice in this stuff, had avoided being arrested when he got arrested. And she rang his mother, and his mother then went into his bedroom and proceeded to destroy many of the works by cutting or carving them up, leaving the remains of the frames in the trash over a period of several weeks and forcing the shredded paintings down her garbage disposal unit. Other (laughs) artifacts, such as vases, jewelry, pottery, and statuettes, were simply thrown into the nearby Rhine Canal. Where some were later recovered by dredging. One of my favorite quotes from the article that got translated. I'm going to read you at how it was translated because it's kind of awesome. Milrari, who is the mother, decides to get rid of Stefan's collection. In the hopes of saving her son, she destroys the paintings with scissors and a shredder, drops antiques in the Rhine, buries paintings in the compost heap, and leaves them in the forest. Hikers find goblets, ivory, porcelain, but no paintings. I just like the idea that you like hiking through it and then you... Oh. <laughs> of the thir- 239 stolen exhibits, only 112 are recovered. Many are so badly damaged that restoration is impossible. Both mother and son act out of love. She loves her son, and her son loves art. The destruction shattered their relationship. He is different. Yeah. yeah. I was I was wondering, if, like, yeah, I was wondering if it was going to be revealed that he was not super stoked on that decision on her part. No. Um. And this little quote finishes with. Art is in safe hands with Stefan, exclamation mark. <laughs> so she claims that she destroyed the paintings out of anger, but basically everyone believes that she just did it. To protect him. To protect to sort him. Of like, yeah. Although maybe it could have been a bit of both. Yeah, I would have been a bit, a bit miffed. <laughs> so when the authorities 19 days later showed up at the mother's house, all they found was the cord from the Stogulum bugle. Oh, probably enough. Yep. He did not confess until a few months later, and then he gave the authorities a detailed account of what he was doing. So he apparently was like, not only gave him a detailed account, but was like astonishingly detailed account of what he bought stolen and how. Bearing in mind, we're talking one every 15 days. He was able to tell them not only everything he'd stolen, but also where he'd put them and assigned each item in his mother's house. He'd actually basically put them up like a museum collection in there. Mm -hmm. Once he went to trial, most of what was said at trial was just detailing the inventory of all the stuff he'd stolen. And he, according to The Guardian, interrupts the proceedings several times to correct the description or a provenance of a painting. So he has no interest in sort of getting out of this. Nope, he he just fesses up to all of it. And, uh, yeah, his biggest gripe was that he didn't like, he said after he was extradited to France, he complained that he preferred the quality of prison life in Switzerland because there he was incarcerated with bankers and directors of business who made better companions than the delinquents and drug dealers in the French prison system with whom he said he had no common language or hobbies. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Fair enough. So he was only given three years of jail. Um, 
But the day before his sentencing, he actually attempted to hang himself, but was stopped by another inmate, alerted by guards. His mother served 18 months, and his ex-girlfriend received 18 months, but only served six. Okay. He has been described as being deeply depressed in his time, uh, in this time, and he made a tearful plea for his mother before the sentences were handed down. He said, I feel guilty for my mother. If you send her to prison, you will kill her. I apologize for everything. I'll compensate the victims and take full responsibility. Oh, yeah, that was not depressing at all. And, well, we haven't got there yet. He hasn't finished. Because this was 2001, and he only got three years. Mm-hmm. Okay. He says he can no longer talk to his mother because he feels so guilty and ashamed. His girlfriend's left me. He has no home, no money. All I have is a father and a few friends in prison. However, he did manage to write an autobiography of his exploits entitled Confessions of an Art Thief, and it was published in 2006, and it was republished in Germany, in Germany, but yeah, in German, in 2007. So he got out of jail, and he went back to, as far as I can figure out, live with his mother again. He was also out of jail. And in April 2011, they discovered 30 more stolen works during a house search, and it landed him back in jail in 2013 for another three years. He got out of jail in 2016, and in 2019, in February, he was arrested again. Because oh, my he, God. Because he had been under surveillance since he last uh, been let out of prison. Because uh, he tried to sell us paperweight on eBay, which was stolen from a museum in St. Louis. At, uh, once the police raided his home, they found Roman coins from another museum, as well as pieces from German galleries. And they also found... In his mother's home, 163,000 euros in cash hidden in buckets. He's oh. back in jail again. So he's still in prison. <laughs> yeah, third, third time in third time in however long. I guess three years must be the maximum amount of time that you can serve for like nonviolent crime. Maybe. So, yeah, I think I think that's I think I have heard that. So he just keeps going back to jail for three years, coming out, and he's just obviously <sighs> a kleptomaniac who loves art. I mean, there's the thing is, is that you read it and there's almost something purely naive. It's very romantic. Yeah. It's like a very, it's a very French story. Yeah, like, I wanted it, so I took it. And what's yeah, the problem and, with that? And I, and, and I, I, love and I it. only wanted it because I appreciated it and loved it so much. Exactly. Apparently, he was really upset because it took sometimes days for the paintings to be reported stolen because no one had even missed them. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that that would be upsetting for him. Because, like, he obsessively loved these paintings. Right, and yeah, that he stole them because he loved, he wanted them so badly. Yeah, he obsessively loved these paintings, and it was just... Yeah, so that is the story of the first one. Mm-hmm. Which, I guess, could have been enough. But... Yes, but... I didn't just do one, I did two. <laughs> so the other person I did was Vincenzo Peppino. Okay. Who is known as the gentleman thief. All right. And I'm going to give good. you like a a pretty quick rundown of him because honestly, he is so cool. <laughs> he grew up in pro- poverty, like extreme poverty, mm-hmm. to the extent that he was expelled from school for fighting when he was like six or eight years old um, because he wanted to eat the core of one of his classmates' apple and they wouldn't give it to him. So he fought with him. Um, and because of that, he was placed in a psychiatric ward briefly, Mm -hmm. 
um, before his mother fought for him to be released. And at eight years old, he was sent to work in a mortuary. By the way, this is in 1950. Mm. Which is scary in a whole different... Yeah, that's, that's not, that's not, a, that's not that long ago. No. Uh, no. He would have to dress the dead and dust the coffins. Yikes. Yeah. Then he went and worked in a pastry shop, uh, shop where he got fired for stealing food because he had to feed himself. Uh, how dare he? I know. So at this point, he quit the life of working and just went straight for the life of crime at like 10 years old. And he started learning. He lived in Venice. Did I say that? He was Venetian. Uh, you did not mention that. So he lived in Venice, which is as someone who's been to Venice, like a labyrinth, and he learned all the streets inside out and basically just spent his entire days running around Venice. Um, okay. When he was 13, he was so badly behaved that his mother invented a story called The Golden Leg, which was about the ghost of a woman who was haunting their stairwell in their apartment block. <laughs> and it apparently actually was really impactful to him because he developed fear of the dark. And it... He also learned to s climb the outside of his apartment building so he could avoid the stairwell. And wow. these two things literally stuck with him through his entire life of crime, which is primarily he only ever committed crimes during the day. Mm -hmm. And he was famous for being able to climb buildings. All right. His first major theft was at a beach when he was 14. He followed an American tourist who he pickpocketed. And it it was a large sum of money, but it was in dollars, and he had to go to a bank to exchange it, where he was arrested, and then he served seven months in jail at the age of 14. And basically, it just went from there. And there are, there's this amazing article, like I said, at, online that you can read about it, and he's written several books about it. So I'm just going to give you a taster of his life, and then you should all go mm -hmm. out and read books about him. He has committed over 3,000 robberies at museums, galleries, banks, and private residences, many of which were committed in Venice. He really did kind of stick to what he knew. But yeah. he had this incredible ethical code of conduct. He would never steal watches or other items that would be repaired as he didn't want to affect the income and livelihood of those whom he stole from. Mm -hmm. um, he would never use violence or blackmail. Although... He does use bribery and blackmail a lot. Well, he didn't use blackmail. <laughs> he used ransom a lot, so I'm not really sure whether... Uh, uh, but he would also never damage the stuff he stole and never leave a mess for his victims. For example, if he was stealing a sugar bowl, he would empty the sugar into a kitchen towel for taking okay. the sugar bowl. Interesting. Art theft was his speciality, and he ensured that none of the works left Venice, and they would actually pretty much all be returned to their owners for ransom. Okay. Um, and he would deliberately only steal objects of personal value, or mostly steal objects of personal value, such as heirlooms. The only thing he did have a little bit of an issue with was he was totally obsessed with cashmere. So whenever he went into anyone's home to steal stuff, he'd take the cashmere for himself. <laughs> he, His accomplices included a deaf lookout man, who, that just seems stupid, but amazing. Yeah, I, I, I thought I misheard you, no. but I don't think I did. No. Okay. <laughs> like... Like, the article I read that was really funny and good and well-written about him talks about how he stole something and he came back down to let his accomplice in, who was supposed to be looking out as he scaled this building, only for his accomplice to not even realize he was behind him until he tapped him on the shoulder, let alone, like, 
looking out. <laughs> he actually had a really good relationship with the Venetian police. And he okay. talks a lot about it, including the head of special investigation. And after a theft, notable theft that had the hallmarks of Pepino, which basically means no one was hurt. It was done usually in daylight and it was usually very slick and Ocean's Eleven-y. He would go and have coffee with uh, the head of chief, uh, head of police would go have coffee with him. And Pepino would offer to recover the important item as a civic duty, accepting the tokens of appreciation offered by the victims via negotiation with the police. <laughs> but the whole thing was, if he got caught, the police said they weren't going to cover for Protect him. him. Yeah. So whatever it was, like, not very clear who it was, he could... He just had this thing. He was the first person to successfully steal from the Doge's palace, which was once the residence of the Doge of Venice and has been a museum since 1923. On a separate thing, there was recently a big theft there, and he. this is why he popped up, because he was saying, like, he was the only other person that had managed to steal from this museum, I guess. Gotcha. Um, he'd been asked to steal from there by a the head of the mob in Venice who were going to use the art that he'd stolen as leverage to get their cousin released from jail. Mm. And they wanted to do like a proper like guns blazing heist. And Pepino said, like, let me give me a couple of weeks and I'll get it for you and no one will get hurt. Yeah. And it was one of the few occasions where he actually had to do it in the dark. And all he did was hang around and hide after the last museum group had left. And then he waited, he timed the rounds of the guards who passed by every 45 minutes, and he just took it in that 45 minutes. So cool. Uh, it Like, he's just cool, you know? Very rad. He is just very, very yeah. cool. And after that was found, he also, he told them that they'd return, it would be returned mysteriously within 20 days, and funnily enough, it showed up within 20 days. He has his activities, which, like I said, are really worth reading about in, like, actual detail, because they do read, like, a Hollywood movie, even though yeah. it happened in real life. His activities have resulted in 300 complaints to police, 15 sentences totaling over 25 years in prison. He has been arrested many, many times. Uh, he has served prison time in France, Germany, and Switzerland. Noticing, I'm as I say that, no prison time in Italy, which is where he committed most of his crimes. Since being released from prison... Currently, he has a Facebook account where he uses it to reveal tricks of the trade and to dissuade young people from adopting a lifestyle similar to his. I'm not sure that any of this dissuades me from becoming a great art thief. It sounds pretty really awesome. Be an art, really I want to be really an, art be an art thief. And he is providing consulting services to the wealthy, teaching them how to protect their properties for a fee of up to 2,000 euros at a time. And Interesting. Yep, he is obviously... That seems like a very clever way of knowing how people are securing their properties. Their wealth. <laughs> yeah. yeah so property. apparently, I, so honestly, it's so worth... I, I cannot do him justice in this podcast. But like, people in Venice actually wanted to be have their stuff taken by him because it was like, it became a badge of honor that it meant you had good taste. Yeah. So it's this whole cult of personality built up around this guy. Yeah. And it's all really, really cool and very, like, harmless. Yeah, I mean, it's it, not, but... It's nearly a victimless crime. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, 
So all of this sounds really cool. I will say that there is a footnote to this, which is he's currently in jail, I believe, right now for drug running, drug dealing. Ah. Now, um, and before that, he was arrested for credit card fraud. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the credit card fraud he admits to and, like, isn't doesn't really deny that he used to clone credit cards and use them to buy crazy things. <laughs> and that kind of fits in with his, like, ethos motto, I guess. Mm-hmm. The drug dealing is very different. And, and the he, cocaine... He hasn't, hasn't, admitted to, hasn't admitted to that? No, in fact, he's done the opposite. And so categorically, he would never do that. He has not done it. Okay. He would never do it. It doesn't fit in with what he... Like, he's categorically said, like, uh, yeah, okay, I'm a bad human, but this is one thing I would never do. So, uh, take it as you will on that one. It's just interesting where our morals lie, because I was like, he's so cool! Oh, wait, he does, like, he has a history of dealing cocaine and running drugs? Oh. I have I have zero problem with that. <laughs> so, you know. As a person. <laughs> so there was definitely, like, there's definitely, like, a footnote in there, but he is... I, I don't know. I'm kind of obsessed. I'm going to literally get his book. Yeah. Definitely a legendary sort of thief guy. I've actually just been Google searching art thieves now, like on the other end of this call, because I want to read. I just found it. This is an unrelated, but I just found a super long New Yorker article about some French thief who did some crazy nonsense, and I can't wait to, to dig into it. And honestly, I, I think like those books have just like got just rocketed to the top of my suggested reading i know and that's why i did too because i was like these are two really totally different people Mm -hmm. one is doing it because of the ultimate love of the art yeah and one is doing it really because of the love of the theft or the heist they're, and they're yeah, both still alive. Cool. They're both still alive today. They're both still doing stuff today. I'm sure they're both still stealing today. And we should probably not, therefore, you know, validate their livelihood of crime. But let's face it, that's pretty much what all Hollywood movies do is validate it's lives true. of crime. So, true. It so wasn't what, what harm are we gonna do? Yeah, it wasn't what I was thinking of when I said let's do criminals. But <laughs> to, um, fall in love with a, to fall in love with a, a Venetian pickpocket. Yes, and there's this like description of him where it's like he is good looking in a way that only Italian can be. He has moles on his face and he's overweight. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> kind. I'm like, um, so Venetio Pepino. Pepino. Pepino is uh is my new my new celebrity criminal crush. My new, my new celebrity crush. <laughs> He's only he's say, only seventy years old. He's already said oh. himself that he's destined to die in prison. Jesus, I you know <laughs> I'm not thinking that it's going to go well, but I'm also not thinking that there's anything that Ben has to be jealous about in this one. No, I think it, I think your marriage is safe. I think it may be, but I I am going to try and find. <laughs> so I will say that I I wasn't able to find I wasn't able to find the first guy I talked about who I'm less in love with. Um, Stefan Breitweiser, Breitweiser. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to find his book, but I am. I am going to go on a hunt for Vincenzo's Pepinos, and yeah, I truly definitely. recommend that article. And Adam, I will send you literally. I'll send you the link to it because it's phenomenally written as well. Yeah, I I really want to. I really want to read it now. Um, um, it's the one by Epic. It's called Epic True Stories. This web, this magazine, 
that I'd never heard of. I have no idea what it's about. And I just read this and I was like, these guys, I mean, when you read it, they were obviously, as someone who comes from the film industry, they were obviously writing it to get it optioned okay. for a film. Yeah. Like they were, it was, it reads like a movie synopsis, mm-hmm. but it's just good. Yeah. Yeah. Send that over. I'd be happy to, to, to read that. Cool. All right. I am going to send that to you now. And then cool. I am going to get back to all the emails that I apparently just missed because I just, my internet just connected again and that's always dangerous. Oh, God. All well, right. Enjoy that. What are we doing next week? Because you may as well get started on researching. Yeah, I don't know. You want to pick? I have no idea. What are we doing next week? Um, I don't know. We've really honestly done a really nice mix of stuff recently. Yeah, I, I think we've been pretty across the board. Um. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I did not, I couldn't think of anything. I was just going to do something French. Okay. Before, um, before I realized uh, that we were actually behind and not ahead of schedule. But I don't know, I don't know what French thing I'm going to do. Okay, so, all right, so let's do, should we do something from a country that we've visited and that we love? Hey, let's do that. That's really broad. Yeah, <laughs> and also, also my my list is limited to three countries. Well, you've already said you um, want to do France. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am definitely going to do something French, but like, so like, just pick you pick whatever you want to do. Then, well, you I might I might do Argentina because we haven't done mm. anything from South America. I don't think. No, I don't think we have. And no. I, it's one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, for sure. That sounds good. So. Yeah, let's get real broad. Let's get real broad with it. Real broad. You're going to do something French. I'm going to do something from Argentina. Maybe we will specify it down while you guys are away and you'll get something very specific next week, but we'll see. Yeah, we will see. Um, But hopefully you enjoy it and hopefully you've enjoyed this episode of the Legendary. Awesome. Well, guys, um, this is me giving a final, like, please do me a favor and go rate and review us on iTunes if you listen to us on iTunes. You have no idea how much of a difference it makes to what we're doing and from the point of view of whether we are successful or not. And honestly, that's not why we're doing it. I think it's probably quite obvious that we do it because we enjoy digging into these things. But it's great when we do hear back from you guys. And I've been noticing that a lot of the podcasts I listen to have pointed this out, which is you probably know a lot of people that would enjoy podcasts and that they don't listen to podcasts because they don't know what they are and nothing to do with our podcast. but Generally, if you know people who don't listen to podcasts or are scared to get into podcasts, why don't you teach them about it and show them it? Because it really has enriched my life a hell of a lot, not just making them but listening to them. Yeah, suggest our podcast to your friends, please. And then help them find it. Yes, (laughs) yeah, and then send them the links. Because so many, well, okay, do you not find that? Do you talk about podcasts? Have you talked about podcasts with people in France and then being like, I don't know, I don't even know how to listen to a podcast? No. You don't talk to I have, people. I, I don't know. You drink? Um, no. Yes. No, I haven't. Because like, also, like the the crowd isn't like I'm not gonna talk to expats about the podcast that I listen to. No, but you people <laughs> but, but, but listening I, should. But when I do talk to my friends about about the podcast, I mean, usually like I'm de- I'm decent about keeping a mental note and in, in my head. Or I mean, like let's be honest. Like, if someone suggests a podcast to you and you're interested in it, you're just going to pull your phone out, open Spotify, like, and then download a couple of episodes. Yes, like, so encourage your friends to do that if you think they'll like yeah, it. Yeah, and then, and then uh, yeah, and then show them our, our, all of our stuff and send us some emails and tell your parents and tell your grandparents. Yeah, because Adam's 
grandmother actually does listen to us. She does, which, I mean, you want to be as cool as my grandma, so. Everyone wants to be as cool as Adam's grandma. All right, okay. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. Bye, bye, bye. All right.